As the old saying goes, if you want a friend in politics, get a dog. Boris Johnson hasn't even left 10 Downing Street yet, but his colleagues, his allies and former backers are all busily deciding who should get the honour of painting over that hideous and expensive wallpaper which got him and Carrie in so much trouble. The runners and riders are limbering up for what could be a particularly bruising leadership contest. The right-wing press are considering their next moves, and Keir Starmer, thanks to the Durham police, lives to fight another day. I'm joined tonight by Aaron Vistani, the one and only. How are you doing? Very happy to be finally joining you, Ash. You did two great shows yesterday. I kind of felt left out. Well, you know what they say, you always get replaced by a younger, browner model. Very quickly, before we get into the main body of the show, what has your experience of the past three days been? Have you been looking on as an entertained spectator or have you been feeling kind of alarmed by the speed at which an entire government can collapse? That's such a great question. I think for me, it's been almost like a sense of deja vu. And I've not been too gleeful about the whole thing because, of course, you remember the, the, the collapse of the May government, which took a far longer period of time, in a sense, because she had multiple votes against her with regards to the EU, EU withdrawal bill. She had the motion of no confidence. Obviously, the checkers deal didn't work out before that. So it was a very long period where she looked politically finished, I think longer than Boris Johnson. But we celebrated that and it felt good. And of course, Labour were leading in the polls and it looked in all likelihood that there would be a Labour government afterwards. And of course, things turned out very differently. That's not to say I think things will be repeated this time round. I don't think there's going to be some white knight that saves the Conservative Party, gets them an even bigger majority next time round. But it does go to show how quickly things can change in politics, both for better and for worse. So yes, all of course very welcome, a great deal to cover. But euphoria is probably the wrong word. I suspect we're going to get an even more dysfunctional Tory party after this. Well, I mean, did you have, out of the 60 resignations that we were treated to since Tuesday night, do you have a particular favourite? I think it was a non-resignation of Suella Breverman, which to me just showed <laughs> a complete absence of sort of political reason. I mean, look, we're, we're on the left and we love political chaos. We love drama. We love, you know, the establishment kind of showing itself up. But I, I've never heard of somebody calling on their boss to resign and then them not resigning and also simultaneously saying that they plan to launch a leadership bid. So for me, that was the, that was the highlight. And I guess as, as well, the, the rumors at which, of course, then became, you know, what we're going to discuss now, the, the rumors of, of, of two chancellors in two days calling on <laughs> Boris Johnson to step down was, again, unprecedented. And you hear that word in politics a lot, unprecedented. All of this is unprecedented. Amazing. I mean, I've got to say, there were three standout resignations for me, which were by far and away my favorites. Number one was the multi-pack resignation, where you had, I think it was four or five junior ministers signing the same letter. The same way when at work you send a birthday card around and everyone just like puts their names to it, like, I hope you have another great year, or like a leaving do. And it's like, oh, Sandra, you'll be really missed. I loved our chats by the kettle. Do you know what I mean? There was just so little effort put into it. That was great. Close runner-up, I would say, is Michelle Donnellan, who was appointed education secretary to replace Nadine Zahawi. And then, I mean, a single day later, resigns because she's like, you know, you really must go prime minister. And it's like, hang on, girl, you knew that a day ago when you took the job as education minister. I mean, she didn't even get through her office orientation. She still doesn't know how to use the scanner. And she's like, 
intending my resignation. So that was pretty good. And then I think the third one, which really I think summed up just the choreographed nature and that when Boris Johnson was whinging about the herd mentality of Westminster yesterday, maybe he did have kind of a point. It was resignation number 32. And I can't remember the guy's name, but I know it was resignation number 32. And in the letter, he said, you know, I cannot abide how the Conservatives have created a hostile atmosphere for LGBT people, which is true. They have created an intensely hostile atmosphere for LGBT people. But that would have been principled resignation if, A, you'd done it when the Conservatives were riding high on transphobia and culture wars. That would have been a really powerful time to do it. Or B, if you were at least in the first five resignations. But by the time you're at number 32, 31 people have gone before you. 31 people have resigned before you. And you're like, I'm going to do a really brave and principled thing in the middle of the herd where no one will notice what I've done and just rummage around in the bag of honorable reasons. I thought that was a total joke. On to our first story. Top Tories are lining up for the big job of succeeding Boris Johnson as Conservative leader and Prime Minister. Here's a quick who's who of the motley crew that will eventually squeeze out the next PM. The first of the frontrunners to launch their bid is, of course, Rishi Sunak, who today released this video. Let me tell you a story about a young woman almost a lifetime ago who boarded a plane armed with hope for a better life and the love of her family. This young woman came to Britain, where she managed to find a job. But it took her nearly a year to save enough money for her husband and children to follow her. One of those children was my mother, age 15. My mum studied hard and got the qualifications to become a pharmacist. She met my dad, an NHS GP, and they settled in Southampton. Their story didn't end there, but that is where my story began. Family is everything to me, and my family gave me opportunities they could only dream of. But it was Britain, our country, that gave them and millions like them the chance of a better future. I got into politics because I want everyone in this country to have those same opportunities, to be able to give their children a better future. Our country faces huge challenges, the most serious for a generation, and the decisions we make today will decide whether the next generation of British people will also have the chance of a better future. Do we confront this moment with honesty, seriousness and determination, or do we tell ourselves comforting fairy tales that might make us feel better in the moment but will leave our children worse off tomorrow. Someone has to grip this moment and make the right decisions. That's why I'm standing to be the next leader of the Conservative Party and your Prime Minister. I want to lead this country in the right direction. I ran the toughest department in government during the toughest times when we faced the nightmare of COVID. My values are non-negotiable patriotism, fairness, hard work. We've had enough of division. Politics at its best is a unifying endeavor, and I have spent my career bringing people together because that is the only way to succeed. In the coming days and weeks, 
I will set out my vision for how we can build a better future for our country. I've told you a bit about my story, but I'm running to be our next Prime Minister because it's your stories that matter most. Your futures. Decades ago, Rishi's parents came here with nothing in their pocket but a dream. The dream that one day, their son might be able to sufficiently distance himself from the disgraced government he was a part of in order to have a crack at the top job. Just a few weeks ago, Sunak was dealing with the blowback from revelations around his wife's tax avoidance and his in-laws' billions in wealth. He's a low-tax, low-spend kind of Tory whose inclinations tend this billionaire towards austerity for the rest of us. You'll remember he had to have his arm twisted to provide any help during the cost of living crisis, topping it up only after scandals put his own position in jeopardy. Low tax, low spending might go down well with the Conservative Party faithful, but with the country staring down the barrel of 9% inflation, it might not play so well at a general election. Aaron, this leadership bid has clearly been a long time in the making. What are your first impressions? Distinctly underwhelming. I mean, when Keir Stummer's made a better campaign video than you, you probably have problems. It's interesting how, you know, in the 21st century, all politicians have to be charismatic. You just, you just have to be. You have to somehow be charismatic, even when you're not. And so squishing the idea of charismatic leadership into these bureaucratic platitudes is just really strange to me. My parents had a dream. They came here with nothing. They entered middle-class professions like being a pharmacist and a GP. It's not exactly like a bus driver like Sadiq Khan. Uh, they had a dream, they would do all that, they'd work all their lives so that then I could become the prime minister and keep deficits below 3%. The big ideas have really gone out of politics, haven't they? So you've got this really strange dissonance between the rhetoric, the storytelling, the narrative. It's about your life, I'm centering you, but we can't have capital gains tax go up by 2%, which is what, of course, the guy really cares about, the fundamentals. And it's interesting that they know that Johnson, Farage, Trump, Corbyn, Sanders... They know after all of that, there is clearly a massive centrality now for story, for narrative, Scottish independence, Brexit, um, and you have to be able to situate people's lived experience within a, within a broader story, which, you know, you're leading. They know that, but the actual policies are still the same. And their diagnosis, by the way, is still the same. You know, we're facing all these challenges and now we need to get through the challenges. The, the challenges are your policies. The challenges of no growth, no productivity, falling wages, they're your policies. High inflation, well, the best solution to that is, is wage controls and rent caps and curbing profits. But those are your policies. You, you, you don't want those things to be curbed. So, yeah, a really strange dissonance on, on multiple levels. And I think if you want to understand the complete inability of any British politician from the centre, that's what they call the centre. Of course, he's not in the centre. These are all neoliberal, conservative, right-wing politicians. All of these people have no diagnosis no problem-solving capacities, and certainly no solutions to the problems that we face now in the 21st century. I'm not being ambiguous when I say that. I mean inflation, the housing crisis, energy crisis, climate change, and so on. None of them have any solutions, and yet they talk about solutions. They talk about charisma. Very, very intriguing digital object for me, Ash. I'd love to know your thoughts. I think one of the things that's really striking for me is the way in which this iteration of the Conservative Party leans into identity politics. So we saw it with Sajid Javid, who became the first Home Secretary of Colour this country ever had, obviously immediately following the Windrush crisis, where black British citizens were deported, sometimes to their deaths, completely wrongly. 
the way in which that was neutralized was by playing this game of, well, look, we've elevated a person of color. And then race itself becomes a way to politically launder the conservatives' reputation and make them seem more progressive than they actually are. And so I reckon with Rishi Sunak having thrown his hat into the ring, Sajid Javid rumored to follow suit. We're going to talk about him in a minute. And of course, Suella Braverman already having made a big pitch on Robert Peston. I think they're all going to tell the same story. Suella Braverman did the same thing. My parents came here with nothing. They sailed to this country in a shoe. That is the story which every single black or brown conservative tells, where they make out that their parents or their grandparents came here with nothing. They worked hard. They never relied on the state. And look, what they produced was a class of moral model minorities who are able to look down at all the others talking about, you know, things like institutional racism or discrimination in the housing market or discrimination in employment and go, yeah, no, you know, if I can make it, so can anyone. And I just think it's gross and it's very, very cynical. And it is indeed a weaponization of liberal identity politics. Let's move on to the other would be or could be candidates. First up, Defence Secretary Ben Wallace. Currently the favourite of Tory MPs, Wallace has benefited from his hawkish stance on Russia during the invasion of Ukraine. But he's a Johnson loyalist having run his leadership campaign in 2019, which makes some MPs wary. Plus, polling shows that the wider public doesn't really know who he is, which might go down badly with a party that's focused on electoral success. Next up, we have got Sajid Javid. Now, of course, Sajid Javid was the first to jump ship this week, triggering the end of Johnson's leadership. He made an impassioned common speech about how much he values his own integrity, which is ironic, given that in 2019, his own leadership bid, his colleagues accused him of anti-Muslim race baiting in order to appeal to the party's right wing. Previously a banker at Deutsche Bank, Javid also sold collateralized debt obligations, a shady financial product which powered the 2008 financial crisis. Next, we have got Foreign Secretary Liz Truss. She has hardly shone in her role from declaring that Britain would never recognize actual parts of Russia as parts of Russia to referring to the Irish Premier as the TSOC. Truss has for a long time been more interested in prepping a leadership run than keeping the world out of war. While fanning tensions in Ukraine, she role-played as a pound shop Thatcher for Instagram. Before becoming a minister, she was also one of the authors of the dystopian Tory tract Britannia Unchained, which asserted that the British are amongst the worst idlers in the world. Well, Liz, we can't all be booking constant photo shoots. We have got Tom Tugendhat, who is the current chair of the Influential Foreign Affairs Committee. He has the support of liberal One Nation Tory MPs, though no one yet has much of an idea what his economic or political agenda might be. And some Tories are already calling him too left-wing. His Remainer pass might be difficult amongst his party in the current circumstances, as well as the fact that he's never held a cabinet post. It's pretty Patel! The Home Secretary is apparently considering running. So expect mass internment of woke mobs and refugees catapulted into space if she makes it. Just joking, but not really. She was sacked in 2017 as International Development Secretary for off-piste dealmaking with Israeli officials. And look, in all respects, she's a truly terrible person. And you know, in so many ways, she's a perfect fit for the Tories. Okay, 
Next up, we have got, you know this guy, Nadim Zahawi. He's been chancellor for less than 48 hours, but he still managed to publicly call Jeremy Corbyn an anti-Semite in that tiny window. He's also recently secured the endorsement of Red Wall MP Jonathan Gullis, who praised him, and I quote, the epitome of a great British success story, a refugee who came to this country and is grateful to this country for making him who he is today. Jonathan Gullis, of course, voted to make it harder for child refugees to join their families in the UK, and he is a loud supporter of the Rwanda policy. Before becoming an MP, Nadim Zahawi co-founded polling company YouGov, and during the 2017 election, he threatened its CEO for publishing a poll that was too favourable to Labour. He later claimed it was just a joke. He's also worth 100 million quid. Following on, we've got Trade Minister Penny Mordaunt, who is a Brexit fanatic and a military hawk, who's kept her own reputation rather squeaky clean in recent years. So, girl bosses everywhere could celebrate, and did celebrate, when she became the first female defence secretary in 2019, only to get the sack a few months later. And you might not know that she voted against the right of EU nationals to remain in the UK post-Brexit. She voted against raising benefit spending in favour of the disastrous Brexit tax and for any number of draconian immigration measures that you care to mention. Tory grandee Jeremy Hunt has served in the cabinets of David Cameron and Theresa May, but refused the top defence job when Johnson offered it to him. Perhaps he saw what was coming and cannily chose to keep his hands clean. But as May's foreign secretary, he supported Saudi Arabia's brutal bombing of Yemen. And as health secretary, he called the NHS rotten to the core and oversaw a rapid increase in its privatisation. Formerly a Remainer, political expediency has seen him recently warm to the Brexit wing of the party. But the affable Elder Statesman Act appeals to the Liberal wing too, so he may yet stand a chance. On the other side of the Brexit Remain divide, we have got self-styled hardman Steve Baker, who is the answer to the Tories' every problem in his own mind. As a climate change sceptic, he's opposed to net zero targets as well as wind and solar, and he has claimed that civil servants deliberately published pessimistic models of the post-Brexit economy before having to apologise. And as it turned out, they weren't pessimistic enough. He enjoys a core of 50-year-old divorced dad whose kids hate him supporters who love the sound of his voice almost as much as he does. But he may have alienated too much of the party to go far. We can only hope. Finally, it's my girl, you love her, Attorney General Suella Braverman, who announced her run before anyone else. Her main policies seem to be transphobia and tax cuts, and despite her unforgettable performance, the bookies currently have her on odds of 33 to 1. Though she doesn't really have much of a chance, though in the Tory party, everyone's a chancer. As Tory MP Mark Jenkinson outlined in these tweets, I have sought counsel from those I can trust to blow smoke up my ass that when weighed against my own inflated sense of self-importance leads me to conclude that I should throw my hat into the ring and stand for election as leader of the Conservative and Unionist Party. Over the next six weeks, I will be available to promise you the moon on a stick. Ask it and it shall be yours. Let me worry about how I deal with three chancellors and a cabinet of 160. It is having the answers to those questions that makes me the most suitable candidate. Aaron, who are you feeling here and who scares you the most? 
Oh, they're all quite scary. I mean, some of, when you were listening, that was obviously a very long list. You know, when you said Steve Baker is the answer to every uh, question, I, I couldn't help but thinking of that line, well, if Steve Baker is the answer, what the hell is the question? <laughs> um, Jeremy Hunt, well, you know, as a candidate, you're in trouble if, if, um, if Nadine Dorries is able to formulate a cogent argument against you. She, of course, said that this was the health secretary who failed to prepare for the pandemic. Entirely true, by the way. So if the strategic genius that is the uh, Secretary of State for Media has got you down. You probably aren't gonna. You probably aren't gonna win it. I know he's the pundit's favourite, but he's not the bookie's favourite. It should be said. But I, I, I think that's really going to be a very big mark on him and his uh, his candidacy. And in terms of who I would rate, I think there's two options here. I think it will be somebody like a Javid or a Sunak on the one hand, steady, steady the ship, steady hand on the tiller. Tax cuts, hope inflation goes down, you know, tax, uh, VAT tax goes down a couple of percent, basic rate of tax goes down a couple of percent, cut corporation tax, try and stimulate a mini economic boom for six months and then go back to the country. They could do that. And hey, they maybe even could be the largest party or they won't have the kind of catastrophic losses they're facing right now. I think that's very plausible. On the other hand, you may have somebody like a Ben Wallace or a Penny Mordaunt who leans into the Ukraine thing and tries to mitigate the cost of living crisis as effectively a a national security question. And so you defang it as an economic issue and make it a military security foreign affairs question. And I suppose when you've got Keir Starmer as the leader of the opposition, we'll talk about him more later on today. He's had a really impressive few days. You have to give him his dues. When you've got Keir Starmer as a former director of public prosecutions, having somebody like Ben Wallace, who was at Sandhurst, again, somewhat mitigates that. I think people now are ready for more serious politicians, post-Boris. Let's see how long that lasts for. Uh, and I think Ben Wallace probably probably fits the bill. Then finally, and I think that, by the way, that change of tack could work, just as stimulating a boom might work, wouldn't be a boom, but you know, sort of trying to get us out of the economic mire for six months, just as that might work. So could the leaning into the foreign and security policy stuff. Because of course, that's still Labour's perceived vulnerability. And then I think, I think finally, it's going to be really hard for the Tories regardless, because you know, their, their membership and their MPs are, com- are completely batshit. This is a problem for them. And, you know, what brought Boris Johnson down, people, of course, are saying it's Boris Johnson, it's his leadership and so on. That's all true. But fundamentally, what was additive in the final months of the Boris Johnson premiership was personnel and the scandals involving the people behind him on the Tory benches. That's not going to change because this is a, an endemic problem within their ranks. And, and so could somebody like a Ben Wallace, who's more serious, or a Penny Mordaunt, deal with that, address that? I don't think so. I think there is a really profound problem in terms of party management on a number of levels, on Brexit, on probity in politics, on pulling in the right direction, on policy. There's vacuum after vacuum in the Conservative Party. That's a really, really big problem for them. And I don't see a larger-than-life politician, a good organiser, a good manager, somebody with attention to detail who could really address that. Could be wrong. You know, it could be like I say, Sunak or Javid come in and they, and they pull off a reasonably good result in 2024. Could happen. But I, I don't think that's probable at this point. I thought you made a really interesting point there, which is that the Tories' best hope of defanging, at least in a rhetorical sense, the cost of living crisis is to present it as a national security issue. And I'd never made that connection before that it's kind of a cynical maneuver to go, Oh, it's almost an act of national self-sacrifice. 
for the people of Ukraine. Now, the details of how the leadership elections will work are still not clear and won't be until next week when the 1922 Committee of Backbench MPs agrees the rules. So normally, MPs vote on the most popular candidates in successive knockout rounds until only two remain, at which point the Tory party members swoop in and vote for the new leader. But in a rush to get a new leader in place, former Prime Minister John Major suggested that the competition should bypass the Tory grassroots altogether which would lead to a Theresa May-style coronation of someone hand-picked by the MPs. That idea hasn't gone down well with many 2019 backbenchers, though, who fear a leader out of touch with constituents who are impressed by Johnson's populism. Though, you know, perhaps that was Major's point. You close down the opportunity for someone like Boris Johnson to come to the top of the pile. Aaron, a lot will turn on how the 1922 committee decide to play this competition out. In this case, which do you think will give the better outcome for the country, democracy or bureaucracy? Well, recent history suggests neither. <laughs> the party membership party membership chose Boris Johnson, although in, the, in their defence, he then went on to win an 80-seat majority. But he plainly wasn't a very good prime minister. And Conservative MPs chose Theresa May, who was um, electoral hemlock. She lost a majority to Jeremy Corbyn and basically couldn't do any governing for two years. So, and she started effectively this whole saga that we, we still are living in, right? There was, there was a Tory majority in 2016. There is the referendum. They had a majority of about 15, 20. The successor to Cameron with that majority probably could have got some kind of Brexit deal through in 2016, 2070. They decided not to. So, I mean, recent history says that they're both bad options. You know, what we're hearing in the, in the last few sort of hours is, establishment pundits saying, well, it shouldn't go to the membership. That's just a small number of people. Of course, this is a very illogical argument, although I'm, I'm sympathetic to it in this instance, because I think most Conservative Party members are, are complete lunatics. But you, you surely then wouldn't want to refer to an even smaller number of people who are ideologically committed to a certain set of failed policies and politics, i.e. the Conservative, Conservative Parliamentary Party. So ideally, I think you'd have a general election, given the nature of our constitution. But I think fundamentally, the left should be arguing for a different kind of system than this. This will be the third prime minister in 14 years who uh, who wouldn't have been chosen by the electorate or the membership and purely by a cabal of people in parliament. Of course, the first was Gordon Brown, then uh, Theresa May, and now uh, potentially this person. So I would be very, very wary of it. And instinctively, I don't like the anti-democratic arguments that are made by pundits who, like I say, in this instance... I agree the Tory membership is, is not the best group of people to determine the next prime minister. But the principle of democracy and not allowing 100, 200, 300 people in parliament, I think that's even more important. Boris Johnson was a newspaper man through and through, from when he was sacked at the Times for making up quotes, to his tenure at The Spectator as editor, where he cheated on his wife with Petronella Wyatt and allegedly groped journalist Charlotte Edwards under the table. To help his rise from Theresa May's chief wrecker all the way to Prime Minister, The Telegraph gave Johnson a column worth £250,000 a year. So perhaps it's only natural that the right-wing papers who propelled him to power would be a little bit sad to see him go. Both The Sun and Boris Johnson's old employers at The Telegraph opted for humanising portraits of the Prime Minister just after his resignation speech. So both papers, you can see there, are creating quite a sympathetic portrait of the Prime Minister as an imperfect politician, perhaps, but definitely a dedicated family man. 
of course, you would have to be a dedicated family man if you were in a competition with Elon Musk for who can father the most kids. An understandable tinge of sadness, but the Daily Mail pitched over into utter derangement. What the hell have they done? Christ, that's a headline. I mean, look, the Daily Mail are clearly in agreement with Boris Johnson's framing that this is a betrayal by mutinous Tories and no acknowledgement that knowingly hiring a serial groper and then lying about it might have had just a little part in his downfall. Just to give you a sense of how insular the world of political commentary is, you've got Sierra Vine promising to lift the lid on Johnson versus Gove psychodrama. And yes, that is the same Sarah Vine, who's the ex-wife of Michael Gove. But not all of Johnson pals in the right-wing press were busy boo-hooing. Same day that their former editor resigned in disgrace from the highest office in the land, the Spectator hosted a summer party for Westminster insiders. Now, this was effectively a singles night for would-be Tory leaders and power brokers. In fact, it was so obviously a stage of political significance that BBC Newsnight sent down a correspondent to report from outside. This very early days, lots of people haven't even declared their hand, but who do you think is going to win? Well, there were three potential candidates at the Spectator Summer Party tonight. We had Rishi Sunak, the former Chancellor, Nadim Zahawi, the new Chancellor, and Tom Tugendhat, uh, who is the Chairman of the uh, Foreign Affairs Select Committee in Parliament. But there will be many, many contenders, many runners and riders. There'll be some well-known ones, Liz Truss, Ben Wallace and Suella Braverman. There'll be some not-so-well-known ones, people like Kemi Badenoch. But, you know, Kirsty, rule number one of a Conservative leadership contest, the front runner never wins. And interestingly, not that long ago in the party behind us, I was uh, talking to one Conservative grandee who will be at the heart of this. They know a lot about the Conservative Party. I said, who is going to win? They looked up to the twilight of the summer evening and they said, I have absolutely no idea. I mean, look, that thing about the front runner never wins, and that's an ironclad law of Tory leadership contest, is total bullshit because Boris Johnson won and he was the front runner, but I digress. So, we've got an invite only party for a magazine which, as we've discussed on this show before, happily publishes great replacement conspiracy theories. And leadership hopefuls and kingmakers rub shoulders with the likes of Andrew Neil, Nick Robinson, Laura Koonsberg, and Andrew Marr. And look, we all know that The Spectator has influence in Westminster, which vastly exceeds its readership. Despite publishing articles with titles like In Praise of the Wehrmacht, or pieces which argue that black people have lower IQs than white people, it's considered a very prestigious magazine. And of course, Boris Johnson used to be its editor. But... Strangely, nobody at the BBC seems to consider it at all weird that power and influence are so concentrated in the UK that if you fired a missile at the Spectator Summer Party, you'd knock out almost all of the political reporting capacity in the UK, plus the government and most of the Tory benches. I tried to bring this up myself later on on that same episode of Newsnight, and it didn't necessarily get a great hearing. The thing that I would add to all of this is that it is bananas that some of the most important questions concerning our democracy bypass the electorate entirely. We've got a leadership pitch, which isn't just a leadership pitch, it will be a prime ministerial pitch being made to a handful 
of people who happen to be Conservative Party MPs or members. Mm -hmm. And all of this horse trading is going on at the Spectator Garden Party where Boris Johnson well, used to be well, minister. Uh, 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 this is elite parliament. Well, on that note, we're just about to finish. I mean, look, I understand being pressed for time, and I'm not suggesting that I was being censored because I mentioned The Spectator, but it is very interesting to me how little the BBC wants to reflect on how its own political coverage is being skewed by ideological, hardline right-wingers who would like to see it carved up and sold off to Rupert Murdoch. Aaron, if you got an invitation to The Spectator summer party, would you go? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. I think if I did go there, I would be projectile vomiting for half an hour straight, probably because I'd be trying to drink myself into a stupid and not have to talk to anyone. But besides that, politically, why wouldn't I go? And of course, there'll be some interesting people there. And, you know, hey, you might want to do some reconnaissance on the enemy. You might want to network. After all, people like Aisha Hazarika go there who are nominally centre-left. I mean, I'm not going to bash anybody. You know, we've got enough people to bash tonight. I'm not going to start bashing other people. But the point is, you know, there are people who apparently aren't on the right who go to these parties. I wouldn't go for the simple reason that, and you know this better than I do, Ash, because you're doing media all the time. Once you start talking to these people and you're on first name terms them and you know them and you're on that circuit, it is actually very hard all of a sudden to hold them accountable or, or, or just to be honest in your criticisms. I think you do that extraordinarily well, but I do think you're something of the exception to the rule, Ash. It's, it's very difficult as a human to know somebody and to interact with them face to face and to be incredibly harsh or critical, not necessarily of them, but of the political project which they're defending or the, or a broader set of policies which they say actually work and you don't think work yourself. It is very hard once you're acquaintances. You know, I've had people before, people at the Times or, you know, certain right wing papers, oh, let's go for a pint. No, thanks. There, is, there are some people who I quite like at the Times, the Sunday Times, who I think do good work. There are certain political ideologues who, no, I don't want any kind of rapport with you, actually, because I know I'll self-censor on certain issues. And look, we've got somebody who does that stuff extraordinarily well at Navarra Media. Their name is Ash Sarka. So uh, I know you're the host, and it's very unprofessional of me to turn this around on you, but I'd love to know your answer. I mean, look, when it comes to the Spectator Summer Party... I would, from a moral standpoint, not go because it is a magazine which is mainstream to one of the most toxic, fascist, conspiratorial, white supremacist ideology. And even if I wasn't a journalist, simply as a person of color who's got some self-respect, I would not be fucking going there drinking their Paul Roger. But I think you raise a really interesting point, which is the way in which a shared social scene can create an alignment of values and of interests and a sense of in-group identity. And I think that's the really critical point here, is that people want to go to the Spectator Summer Party if they orbit that world of Westminster because it shows that they've made it, right? It's like, man's made it, mom, I'm at the Spectator Summer Party, I'm a real journalist now, or I'm a real spad now, you know, I'm seen, I'm, I'm, I'm part of the club. And the minute you are part of that club, and we've discussed this in relation to the lobby as well, you are no longer able to hold that critical distance, which allows you to do your job well, which is to be an effective fourth estate or to be able to distinguish yourself ideologically from your political opponents. That's in the case of people who are nominally Labour, nominally on the centre-left who go to these kinds of things. And I also just think there is something incredibly corrupted about a selfie with Nick Robinson and 
Laura Koonsberg and Andrew Marr swigging champagne, and they're at the same spectator summer party. It shows that this is a club, everyone else is on the outside of it, and if you're lucky, you'll get to observe politics as a spectator sport, no pun intended, um, but for the most part, you're going to be kept on the other side of those closed doors. Today, rather than smashing the red button labelled more violence, Durham police cleared Keir Starmer and Angela Rayner of having breached lockdown rules with cheeky beer and curry. This afternoon, the police released this statement. Following the emergence of significant new information, an investigation was launched by Durham Constabulary into a gathering at the Miners Hall in Red Hills, Durham, on 30th of April 2021. That investigation has now concluded. A substantial amount of documentary and witness evidence was obtained, which identified the 17 participants and their activities during the gathering. Following the application of the evidential full code test, it has been concluded that there is no case to answer for a contravention of the regulations due to the application of an exception, namely reasonably necessary work. Accordingly, Durham Constabulary will not be issuing any fixed penalty notices in respect of the gathering and no further action will be taken. The investigation has been thorough, detailed and proportionate. If you cast your mind back, you'll remember that both Keir Starmer and Angela Rayner promised to resign if they were issued with fines. So this was a pretty significant intervention by Durham Police to accept that the reasonably necessary work exemption applied in this case thus sparing the leader of the opposition the indignity of being brought down by a rogue poppadom. Of course, it wouldn't have all been the poppadom's work. Durham police had looked at this event once before and said there was no case to answer. But that was before the Tory-supporting press decided to throw the kitchen sink at defending Boris Johnson from the impact of the Partygate revelations. As Adam Bienkov from the Byline Times tweeted today, as Durham Police clear Kirstarmer and Angela Rayner of any wrongdoing whatsoever, a reminder that the Daily Mail spent almost two weeks in the run-up to local elections, splashing stories about Labour's lies about the gathering. So the Sun, despite having allegedly had their own lockdown breaching knees up of their own, ran headlines like, Sir Keir Starmer's Beergate defence sunk faster than a bottle of San Miguel. And This is what they had to say in May this year. So, to ordinary people, they look like excuses from a party terrified its leader is in big trouble. It wouldn't much matter had Starmer not spent months standing in pious judgment over his opponents if he hadn't said similar lockdown breaches by Tories were a sacking offence. Mr. Rules must be judged by those same rules. And despite all the pressure he has put on them, Durham police must not falter. As Durham Police clear Keir Starmer and Angela Rayner of any wrongdoing whatsoever, a reminder that the Daily Mail spent almost two weeks in the run-up to local elections, splashing stories about Labour's lies about the gathering. So the Sun, despite having allegedly had their own lockdown breaching knees up of their own, ran headlines like, Sir Keir Starmer's Beergate defence sunk faster than a bottle of San Miguel. And This is what they had to say in May this year. So, to ordinary people, they look like excuses from a party terrified its leader is in big trouble. It wouldn't much matter had Starmer not spent months standing in pious judgment over his opponents if he hadn't said similar lockdown breaches by Tories were a sacking offence. 
Mr. Rules must be judged by those same rules. And despite all the pressure he has put on them, Durham police must not falter. So after all the newspaper inches and spilled ink on the scandal of the forbidden korma, you might think the press would be interested to see what Keir Starmer had to say after being exonerated. But it didn't quite turn out that way. Um, Do we have Harriet from the Mail? No. Do we have anyone else from the Mail? I don't want to... No. I don't have a name for anyone from the Times, so do we have anyone? Or the Mirror? Or the Express? No. In which case, thank you all very much. That was Keir Starmer at his post-Beargate press conference today, soldiering on despite the lack of interest from the same quarters that attacked him. Look, Aaron, we've not always given Keir Starmer the easiest ride, but some people would say he's been pretty vindicated here. He took a big gamble with the resignation promise. He's been cleared of any wrongdoing. Is this time to give credit where credit's due? Yes and no. That might sound like a strange response. I mean, if he had... If he had got a fixed penalty notice today, he shouldn't have resigned. I mean, it was a crazy thing to, to say, Ash. People say, well, he's got integrity. I, I get that. And, and look, he's come out of this smelling of roses. And it's absolutely helps his political brand. But you are putting your political fate and the fate of the country right now, because we don't have a functioning government, in the hands of several provincial detectives. And people are saying, well, they were never going to find him guilty of anything. Well, we know there were thousands of cases where people, you know, were punished for more or less the same thing or less. Now, if there had been a fair, even application of these punishments during the last two years, particularly during these sort of intense lockdown periods, then I would say, yes, of course. But I think it was a very risky strategy. And for somebody who, who clearly comes across as quite, quite risk averse, it was a surprise. But then also, you know, Maybe maybe we've underestimated this guy. Maybe there's more in the in the locker than we thought. So yes, he comes out of this smelling of roses. It was a risk that's paid off, but it could have gone really badly wrong. I mean, if he if he'd got a fixed penalty notice and had to resign, it would have been the most ridiculous resignation of a leading British politician probably in history, because you know he shouldn't have resigned over something like that over a lockdown breaching a quorum and having a lager. So, and I know there is sort of the dissenting views on that, and some people say, no, he should have gone, it shows integrity. I think in the broader context of, of national crisis, it would have looked absurd, frankly. But it has played out very well, and he comes across very well. He was brilliant in uh, PMQs earlier this week, and I think his messaging about, I'm not perfect, I'll make mistakes, really strong, really strong. And he does have a very different operation, very different team to what he had before the local elections last year. Then the guy was a shambles. The immediate response was to try and get rid of Angela Rayner. The optics were terrible. While Boris Johnson was in Hartlepool out talking to people, Keir Starmer was in Westminster cowering, talking to camera, making his excuses. That's all changed. So we said that about Jeremy Corbyn. You know, politicians at the highest level learn very quickly. And I think it was quite obvious to people that Corbyn between 2015, 2017 learned many things, improved on many things in the job. Maybe the same will happen to Keir Starmer. He's never going to be a charismatic politician. But look, we apparently just had one of those. and It didn't work out very well. Let's take a quick look at some polling. Servation released new polling, which was conducted on Wednesday, which was the height of the Tory bloodbath. And here's what it says. 
We've got Labour up two points at 45%. We've got the Conservatives down four points at 31%. The Lib Dems and Greens staying where they are for now. And the SNP up two points as well. So it will be really interesting to see whether or not Keir Starmer will be able to solidify that poll lead that Labour has over the Conservatives. Of course, the the Tories will be looking to take full advantage of the new leader poll bounce, which might come. Hence why Keir Starmer is talking up chances of a vote of no confidence, which would be an opportunity to roll the dice on the possibility of a general election. So one to keep an eye on. That is pretty much all we have got time for tonight. But before you go, remember, we are in the middle of our fundraiser. We've been trying to push our supporters up to 10,000 people and we are within the closing 500 right now. We really are in the home stretch. So if you want to help us out, if you're not already one of our monthly supporters, please go to navaramedia.com slash support. The link is in the description. We are only able to do the work that we do because of you. We don't have any billionaire funding. We don't have a paywall. All we have is you guys. And Aaron, all I have is you as well. Thank you so much for joining me. Ash, thank you. Thank you so much. And what a wonderful host, Ash. This is the future of the news game, Ash. Ash Sarka hosting a brilliant show. So I hope you have a wonderful weekend. Same, of course, to all our our wonderful viewers and subscribers. Well, look, man, I want that BBC hair and makeup budget. I'm here brushing my own hair like a peasant. I want the girl with the tongs, the GHDs, all of that. Please. The show will be back on Monday at 7pm. Hopefully Michael Walker will be sufficiently recovered to get back in the hot seat. You've been watching Tisky Sour on Navarra Media. Good night. This broadcast is brought to you by Navarra Media. Go to navaramedia.com slash support.